by looking at Nehemiah, because when we think of the people at that time, in a sense, they were emerging from captivity. They were emerging into the lives that God had called them back into. Isn't that very like us in a way? Weren't we captive in our sins? I mean, we existed, but didn't God call us out to emerge? And we also think about the idea of emerging in terms of lockdown as well. And Gary spoke another brilliant sermon. Love sitting under Gary's teaching. And there's a couple of things I'd love to really just kind of follow on from today. One of the things that Gary spoke last week about um, when he looked at Nehemiah 4 was the idea of positional freedom and practical freedom. So positional freedom is the freedom that we have in Jesus when we come to him, when Jesus gives us forgiveness for our sins, and we have that. And if you're listening at home and you don't have that, that is so easy to get. Sometimes in life, the things that are really good are quite hard to get. This is not hard to get. Um, You just accept Jesus, which is terrific. But even when we accept Jesus, we may not have practical freedom. We can still find in our lives that we're broken, and we still get held back by sin. Is that your experience? Yeah? That in our lives, you know, we experience freedom in Christ, but we find this dirt every day that really impacts us. And Gary talked about this idea of pressing into a life. It reminded me of John 10.10, a life in all its fullness. What does it look like to walk out into practical freedom from a place of a position of love? And we're going to continue this morning by pressing into that. Gary last week looked at Nehemiah 4, and he went to verse 10. Um, But this week, no, sorry, he went to verse 15. Um, But this week we're going to actually start at verse 10 and overlap some of that slightly because last week was really about overcoming opposition. But the word I got this week was it's also not just about overcoming opposition. It's about sustainment. Because what we've just said is that Jesus overcame opposition on the cross, but we're called to sustain ourselves in Christ. Do you agree? Every day. The work of Christ is done, the victory is done, but we're called to sustain it. Now, in the case of Nehemiah, it wasn't totally finished, but there was a huge victory that we hear about when the people in Nehemiah were able to build the wall to half the height. But we're going to look at some of the lessons that they had about sustaining their walk as they emerged out of lockdown, and we're going to think about that for us here in Journey and perhaps for you at home. But before we get into that, I just want to remind us about Nehemiah 4. Because in Nehemiah 4, we read in verse 1, it says, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Can you get that? He made fun of their worship. He ridiculed their effort, but he made fun of their faith. Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish it in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Can you see what he's doing? He's ridiculing the Jews, and he's making fun of them. And then we get this bit when Nehemiah's doing it, in, or sorry, when, when Sambalat's doing that in the company of the army of uh, 
Samaria. But then we also have Tobiah jumps in, in verse 3. And he says, sure, if it, even a fox did not want to fall over. And then we have verse 7, when it says that Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Asher had heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and were being closed. They were very angry. So we have, first of all, Sambalat and his posse. Then we have Tobiah jumps in, and now we have Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashad. Can you get a sense of the ratcheting up of pressure on Nehemiah? There is an increase of opposition but they're able to build it to half its height. But then we get this in verse 10. After they have that victory, and that victory from opposition, we get this situation in verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. And we'll just read on from that verse to the end of the chapter. Also, enemies said, before they know it, or see us, we will be right there amongst them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who had carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Just want me to remember that. They worked with one weapon in the other, and they worked with a tool in the other, it seemed like. And each of the builders wore his sword to the as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn to the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. And so we get this victory. The wall's built to half its height. The opposition is subdued, but what happens next? What happens next? I want to draw out a few things that Nehemiah does to sustain his people in as they emerge out. In as they emerge out. The first thing they do is in verse 10. 
Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. You see, there was so much rubbish and rubble and burned bricks that the people couldn't work. And one of the first things that we learn in that passage is that rubble will stop us working. In the church, in our lives, in our families, in our work, one of the greatest things that will stop you building for the kingdom is rubble. What is rubble? Rubble can be circumstance, but often rubble is sin. Do you agree with that? When you look at the work of the church, do you agree that one of the greatest sources of rubble is our own sin? Do you agree with that? Have you seen it? Have you experienced it? If you cannot clear the rubble from your life, you will never be able to build to your full potential. Hebrews 12 tells us, Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who by faith have testified to the truth of God's absolute faithfulness, stripping off every unnecessary weight and the sin which so easily and cleverly entangles us. Sin is a very clever entity. It will present itself at times as holiness. Gossip will present itself as, I just want to tell you something I'd like you to pray about. Really, it's gossip. Sin will present itself in many ways as ministry. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes the biggest bits of rubble in our lives are desire for ministry. Ministry can come before serving the Lord. Do you believe that? Matthew 7 says, Many have come to be in my name doing wonderful works, but I will say to them, I don't even know you. As a pastor, I have so much trouble in my life, and so much of it can be around my own ministry. We've got to cast off everything that entangles us. But the good news is, folks, that doesn't mean to say we have to have it all together. Because Paul also says in Philippians 3 this, and this is the message version, I'm not saying that I have this all together, that I have it made, but I am well on my way, reaching out for Christ who so wondrously worked for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in all of this, but I've got an eye on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus. I am off and running, and I am not turning back. So let's keep focused on that goal. Those of us who want everything God has for us, can I ask you a question? Not if you, do you want everything that God has for you? Can I get you to say yes if that's true? Do you want everything that God has for you? Yes. If any of you have something else in mind, something less than total commitment, God will clear your blurred vision. You'll see it yet. Now that we're on the right track, Paul said to the Philippians, let's stay on it. You know, this is the thing about sustainment. Often when we are in church, we have a position where we want the leaders to do things. We're really upset with leadership. We're really upset with ministry. But the thing that God always calls us to is the individual work in our lives. That is always the point. Does leadership have a responsibility in church? 100% absolutely. I remember at one point being so angry with a certain institution or faith. 
remember telling Ruth, my wife, how cross I was. And I went off on a day retreat, and I went off because I was so cross. And Ruth told me, your biggest problem, Greg, is your own soul. You've become hard in your heart. You've become bitter. And that's where God worked on that day with me, was my own sin, my own bitterness. The second thing that we see in this passage, which is really important for sustainment, is words. And I want you to get these different words. Verse 11 says this, then, sorry, also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there amongst them and we will kill them and put an end to their work. Can you imagine for a second being an Israelite and hearing those words? We sit today in 2021 Lisbon. There's no imminent threat. If you were an Israelite back then, if you had family back then, you were hearing that someone was coming to get you. But that wasn't the only place where they heard the words. They also heard the words in verse 12. Then the Jews who came by, who lived near, came and told us, listen to what Nehemiah says in this, ten times over, wherever you turn, they'll attack us. Can you see what's happening there? Even the Jews around are using some kind of emotional blackmail. You're in the wall. You're building the wall. Because of what you're doing, they're going to attack us. And Nehemiah says they told him 10 times over. Why does he say 10 times over in Scripture? Because I think he felt it. Our words are remarkably important. What does Jesus say? Out of the mouth comes forth what is in the heart. Heart. You are always giving information out all the time about what's really going on in your heart, in your body language, in your posture, in your words. Our words are so important. And if our words don't match up with what God's telling us to do, we've got to really look at our heart. And where was the opposition? Where does Nehemiah really extenuate the ten times over? Was there opposition from outside? Yes, there was. Was there mounting pressure from outside? We've just looked at it together. But from within, Nehemiah makes a point of telling everyone, I heard this ten times over. How do we speak about our leaders? How do we talk to our leaders? Do they hear 10 times over what we're doing wrong? Or do we say it is a, do we encourage them? Doesn't the Bible say to encourage your leaders so it will be a joy to lead them? Does Nehemiah sound like he's having a good time? No. 10 times over. But Nehemiah uses different words. This is Nehemiah's words. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah reminds them of the point. And what happens when the enemies heard we were aware of their plot and that God frustrated it, we all returned to the wall each to his own work. Can you see the power in the words there? Nehemiah spoke positively. The enemy goes away. As we build the wall, as we build journey, as we build Lisbon together, 
your words, my words, our words are going to be really, really important. And we will hear words from outside, no question, but the words that we have within these walls are going to be vital. And they have the parts in the Bible of life and death. And in this case, it was life. And Nehemiah's words turned it around. The third thing I want to draw out that Nehemiah did was he encouraged them to stay vigilant. Remember what he said? Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Remember he posted them behind the lowest points of the wall? And each of the builders wore a sword at his side as he worked. For the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Nehemiah made sure he was beside the alarm system, the man with the trumpet. And we, if we want to sustain ourselves, we've got to be very careful with our rubble. We've got to be really careful with our words, and we've got to be vigilant. We've got to watch out for each other. Do you agree with that? Have you ever been to a church before where no one has watched out for you? You know, you can have absolutely great teaching. You can have building-shaking worship. But if you don't have people who come alongside you at the lowest point of your wall and put an arm around you, you'll probably not come back. Do you agree with that? If you go to a church and you feel the warmth of God's love through family, can you throw bad teaching? Can you throw worship that's not quite on key? You probably can. But if there's oikos, if there's family, if there's the spirit together, love covers up a multitude of sins. We've got to be vigilant. Now watch how they were vigilant. I find it really interesting that they mentioned the sword in this. And it reminded me of what Paul said to the Ephesians. I think it was in chapter 4. So think of the people who built. They built with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other. A tool in one hand, a weapon in the other. Listen to this. Finally, in the, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you will take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what Gary was telling us last week. When we get presented with opposition to the flesh, it's not the flesh. Okay? Therefore, put on the armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand strong. And after you've done everything to stand, stand then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted in readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation, and listen to this, and the sword of of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Everywhere that the people of Nehemiah went, they had a sword strapped to them. They didn't even take off their clothes. They did it when they went to get water. They did it when they were protecting their family. And they worked with a sword in their hand, or a weapon in their hand, and a tool in the other. What would it look like to go to school tomorrow and be a teacher, to go to the health service and be a nurse, to go onto the building site with a tool in one hand and the Bible in the other. What would that look like to have the sword with you at all times? 
We have got to be vigilant in our workplaces. We have got to work with our tools that God's given us in one hand and the sword of the Spirit in the other. Do you agree? Think of all the opposition you have in work. Would you be helped to have a sword with you? Wouldn't that be brilliant? And we don't just fight for our work, we fight for our very families. We've got to have the Word of God front and center of all of our family life. The, word does, the world doesn't like the Word very much. It's absolute truth, and the world doesn't like that because when you've absolute truth, you have to take responsibility. You've got to make a choice, and you've got to know right from wrong. And the world does not like that. It's much easier to let everyone do what they want. What was the word in the Bible? And it came to a point, I can't even remember the passage, where everyone just did, people just did right what it seemed to them. I think it was in Judges. People just did right what seemed to them. That's what the world's like at the moment. People are doing right what seems to them. But when you take up the sword, when you take up the sword of the Spirit, and there's a truth of what's right and what's wrong, people don't like that. But we need to have the sword at the very cornerstone of all of our homes. We need to have it hanging in our hallways. We need to be talking about it. Our words need to stop being silly, northern Irish, foolish banter. And it needs to be instead filled with the Spirit. What are we told to say? To speak in verses, to speak in psalms, to speak in encouragement, to stop pulling each other down. And we've got to be vigilant. Now, all of these things seem like a bit of a shopping list. So what Nehemiah does is, Nehemiah organizes this in systems. Because Nehemiah realizes that people are too spread out among the wall. He says in verse 19, Then I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, the work is so extensive and spread out, and, are widely, and we are widely separated from each other. So Nehemiah sent them out. And I talked two weeks ago about the need to work and to be sent out. But Nehemiah twigs on and he realizes that everybody here is down the wall and they're too spread out. So Nehemiah says, when I blow the trumpet, I want you all to come together. And that, folks, is one of the greatest arguments for church. There are people I know who are doing wonderful works of mission. But you know something? They're too spread out and they're spread too thin. And as a result, they're suffering for it. They're suffering for it. I am really passionate about Matthew 28, about moving out. And when I think of church, Nehemiah creates this system of drawing in and going out. Can you see that? Go out to your, your places of work on your wall. Some people were working outside their own house, I believe, outside their own places of work. They were building the wall. But whenever the enemy came and the trumpet sounded, they came back in. So one of the, one of the hangovers from uh, from Zoom, from us all becoming Zoombies, is the fact that we've questioned church, we meet again together. Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how we may spur each other on towards love and good works, not giving up meeting together as some in the habit are doing, but encouraging each other as all the more you see the day approaching. This, I know friends who are Christians who decided for a moment, should we even meet as church? I can get stuff on YouTube. I can get stuff on Zoom. But you know something? When we come together, the Spirit is here. And we can't clear our rubble. 
and we can't watch out for each other, and we can't build each other up with words if we're just sitting in the house all day. And Nehemiah knew that people were lazy, and they knew that he was lazy, and he created systems where people could inhabit systems, and it's the system of church. We've got to really look at how are we creating a system to allow this stuff to happen. And when I think about this, I think about a bit like a tide of the sea. You know the way the sea? The sea, I was way at Tullymore yesterday, and I love being in the forest, but I quite like the sea too, but I prefer the forest more. But when I thought about the sea, I think about church. The sea is a tide. The tide is always moving out, but then it's always being drawn back in. Do you understand that? And it's all done from the title from above. There's always these rhythms of moving out and moving in. Nehemiah's telling his people to go out to the wall, and then he's bringing them back in again. Now, if we don't go out, we're not faithful. We're not Matthew 28. And think about what Tobiah did. Tobiah made fun of their sacrifices, of their religious ceremony. Do you remember I said that at the start? So what Nehemiah, sorry, not Nehemiah, what, what Sambala did was he made fun of the way they sacrificed. He made fun of their religion. He basically questioned the efficacy of what they were doing. Sure, are you going to build a wall by building a sacrifice? And there's a real danger we have to hear that if we just stay within a wall, we're not going to change anything. We've got to move out. We've got to do what Jesus told us to do. We've got to move out. We've got to reach people. We've got to go beyond this building. And we've got to reach people in the old war and Tona and bring them in. But at the same point, we can't be spread too thin. We've got to come back in together. We've got to be rejuvenated, filled back up, fed, blessed. The great thing about going out is, from a tide, you take things with you. Wee bits of sand goes out into the ocean. But you know what comes back? All manner of stuff as well, washed up on the shore. Do you ever see that? We've got to wash things up in the journey from people around us. And some of us can be really messy. But God loves it. And we've got to have a model of church that allows us to clear rubble, to be vigilant, to have good words, but to go out and come back in. Go out and come back in. Go out and come back in. These systems of sustainment. What do you think happens to a church that goes in and stays in? What do you think happens to that church? Nothing. What do you think happens to a church that goes out and stays out and never comes back together again? Breaks up. Go out, come back in. Go out, come back in. Coming back in gives us community. It says in the passage that every man and his helper stayed in Jerusalem at night. You know, everybody in this church needs a helper. Everybody in this church needs a trumpet blower. Everybody in this church needs to stand the lowest points of the walls for somebody. Everybody is low once. Community allows us to do that. 